Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's women in the academy and professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and our guest for this episode is Dr. Michelle Reyes. Michelle has a PhD in German literature with a focus on folklore, including women's writing, storytelling, and feminist revisions. After teaching in higher education for a number of years, Michelle is now pursuing full-time vocational ministry, as well as writing on issues of culture, justice, and solidarity. Alongside her husband, Michelle ministers in an urban multicultural church that serves the disadvantaged and minority communities in Austin, Texas. Their day-to-day ministry includes caring for the undocumented and fighting against mass incarceration in food deserts, as well as empowering people to leave gangs, and much more. She is also the founder and editor of The Art of Tala, where she writes on faith, culture, race, and solidarity. I hope you'll enjoy this rich conversation as Michelle discusses the concept of narrative justice, related to some of her own experience as a woman of color, as well as how her study of German literature and folklore has shaped her faith and worldview and continues to influence the way she pursues Jesus' call on her life. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for being on the podcast today. With most of our audience being women in academia, can you begin by sharing a little about your educational background and how that has influenced who you are today? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So I have a PhD in German literature with a focus on folk and fairy tales, and I deal primarily with women's writing, storytelling, as well as narrative justice. And my BA is in German from Wheaton College, and I did both my master's and my PhD at the University of Illinois in Chicago. My MA is in contemporary German Jewish literature, and my PhD is in 18th century German lit. And while I was up in Chicago, I also taught at Moody Bible Institute. And then when we moved to Austin, I taught at a local liberal arts college called Southwestern University before our second baby was born. And I'm grateful to have a PhD for many reasons. I think that in general, a PhD in the humanities gives you so many skills, skills in research and writing, critical inquiry, engagement with theory and philosophy, as well as interdisciplinary training. And we talked a lot about versatile PhDs while, while I was in academia, and it's true. And I'm now using all of these skills in a different field. But another reason why I think that learning other languages and spending time abroad uh, is incredibly important is especially now as humanities programs are being threatened. And my husband and I, we lived in Berlin for a while while I was conducting doctoral research. And there's really nothing like living in a foreign country, being able to get inside the mind of another people group, learning to be humble and self-reflective about your own culture. This has shaped so much of my own views on culture, identity and self-formation, as well as things like my understanding of cross-cultural relationships and cultural expressions of faith, among other things. Great. That sounds really interesting. And the phrase that you uh, shared that stuck out to me was narrative justice. Can you say more about what narrative justice is? Yeah. So narrative justice is something that Erin and I, my husband and I, are both very passionate about. Narrative justice or story equity, as some people call it, it's, it's a term that's used and developed in global health initiatives 
basically to allow indigenous people to claim and tell their own stories. Mm. And in essence, the idea is that we need to strip the microphone from the person making the narrative so we can change the narrative. So for example, when it comes to the issue of immigrants, which my husband and I, we live in East Austin. Our church is a primarily immigrant church. Uh, our neighbors are primarily immigrant. So a lot of our everyday ministry here on the streets of Austin deals with immigrants. And when it comes to the issue of immigrants, we want to help change the narrative that all immigrants are criminals or a drain on our system, which is a very uh, prevailing narrative in, in our country and helping to change that narrative by amplifying the voices and stories of real migrants in our neighborhoods and our church. The majority of immigrants in our country are not criminals. They're here fleeing oppression or violence or persecution. They've experienced unimaginable terrors and they need our love and compassion, not our scorn. And we, my husband and I were actually currently organizing a citywide conference here in Austin for the beginning of November called Loving Our Migrant Neighbor. And we're going to be having activists, theologians, and migrants themselves coming and sharing their stories because part of seeking justice for people like them and others is fighting against the dangers of a single story in which a whole group of richly complex people are reduced to a single narrative. So yeah, there's so much that can be said about narrative justice, but that's some of the things that we're doing in our everyday ministry. Mm. And I, I like that you said one of the goals is to amplify the voices of those who, you know, have a story to tell that aren't, that their, their story is not necessarily the one that's being told. Yeah, It's interesting to think about justice in the sense of story and how it relates. Along those same lines, can you share a little bit about your spiritual background and how that has shaped who you are as well as your current vocation? Sure. So I grew up in a bicultural conservative Christian home. My mom is Indian, as in from India, and my dad is Anglo-American with British and German heritage. And I grew up attending the predominantly Swedish Baptist church and Christian school in Minnesota. And in all of these spaces, there was not much support for literature. Devotions and Bible studies, yes. <laughs> Amish romance, probably yes. <laughs> Theus Lewis and Tolkien, but certainly not Harry Potter, or anything else with magic. Speculative fiction was off the table along with many other genres. And so I felt in many ways doubly out of place growing up in that not only did I love reading, but I was also Indian. So culturally speaking, there were huge expectations for me to become a medical doctor. And I actually almost did go that route. I was mm. studying for the MCAT and the GRE during my senior year of undergrad. And oh, wow. God clearly opened one door and shut the other. And what I've found in pursuing German is that Christ is in the humanities as much as he is in the sciences. In studying literature and the arts, my theology doesn't have rigid categories of secular and sacred. In fact, nothing really is secular. We can critically read any text and see spiritual implications. And perhaps more importantly, studying literature has had a profound impact on how I read the Bible. So my husband and I, we started this Christian collective blog called The Art of Tala, where we seek to study scripture through a threefold lens, namely theologically, literarily, and historically. Because I believe that the Bible is not just a theological treatise, it's not just a literary text, and it's not just a historical document, it's all three 
together. And this is why it's so important to understand things like genre and when to interpret things literally and when to read a story in a more allegorical light, among other things. Um, so we, we, have, we have fun with, with this blog and we have so many um, guest writers. It's, it's a great, great space. I, I highly encourage people to check it out. But we love talking about things like what, what questions would the ancient Near East audience have been asking about God in Genesis 1 and 2? Or, or, or what important role does nature imagery play in the story of Jonah? Or studying parallelism in Hebrew poetry and, and, and whatnot. So being able to study literature has profoundly impacted how I study the Bible. I love that. And you said that's uh, the blog site is called The Art of Tala. Can you spell that just so listeners yeah. can uh, find so, it? Tala is T-A-L-E-H, and it's an old Hebrew word that means lamb. And we chose it because the three main letters are T, L, and H to stand for theology, literature, and history, being the three Mm -hmm. strands that we're wanting to study. So it's a fun play on words to, to highlight our approach of studying the Bible, but then also Tala being lamb, that our study of scripture is to always point to Christ, the, the, the true lamb of God, if you will. So it's the art of Tala. Great. Thank you. And we'll have that in the show notes too, for people, if they want to click on a link. Earlier, you talked about living in Austin and the work that you're doing there. Can you share a little bit about your family and the work you're doing in Austin? Yeah. So my husband, Aaron, and I are church planters. And we lead an urban multicultural church called Hope Community Church in East Austin that serves disadvantaged minority communities. And we came here in 2014 after Aaron graduated from TED's up in Chicago and planted our church that summer in Austin. And this is where Aaron grew up. So me being Indian American, Aaron being Latino, being a bicultural Latin American, we both have a huge passion for racial solidarity, justice in many different forms, seeking racial healing and helping and empowering the poor and the broken through holistic care. And my husband himself was raised by a single mom and grew up in government housing. Our church is a primarily immigrant church, as I mentioned, and the situation at the border, things like the El Paso shooting has hit us hard. And we're Mm -hmm. starting a lot of initiatives to respond and help in this time of crisis. So things like ice raids are a reality in our neighborhoods, helping empower people to walk away from gangs and uh, and drug cartels, helping people get back on their feet from homelessness or life after incarceration. That's a lot of what our uh, ministry deals with in in the day to day. And yeah, so that's that's a little bit about us and our, our church. Great. What would you say brings you the most joy about your work? Yeah, I, you know, our, our church is called Hope Community Church because our, our aim is to, to share the hope of Jesus Christ to, to the people in our community. And I think that is one of the greatest joys that we can have in this work of, of justice, in this work of both caring for individuals, but also fighting against systems that are that are oppressing people. And it, it's hard work. It's, it can be very discouraging. I think there's also something about these fields 
that, as we all know, can be very divisive for Christians. And we have some people who encourage us along this path and also some Christians that are just very antagonistic. And that's hard. It's hard to receive criticism from fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord telling us that we're doing the wrong thing just simply because we're trying to help the homeless or someone without citizenship or, or, or fill in the blank. But to see individual lives change, to see people really embrace the hope of Christ as we are walking alongside of them, living life-on-life relationships with them, inviting them to join us as a family, that I think is, it, it makes it all worth it. This is why we get up each day and keep going. Yeah, and it seems like your vocation shifted, right, from more of a theoretical <laughs> intellectual field to obviously an on-the-ground line of work where you're working directly with the people whose lives you're seeing changed. Mm-hmm. What was your journey like with that shift from more of an academic focus to now like literally being the hands and feet? <laughs> yeah. So my, my journey is probably a bit unorthodox. So I started out as a German professor and I'm now in full-time vocational ministry as a church leader and writer and speaker. And the catalyst really was when I went on maternity leave with my second child. And I had taught fall 2017. I had a full load of teaching both traditional and uh, contemporary feminist folklore courses. And I was getting ready for Christmas break and was going to take the spring semester off when I found out that our president had cut the humanities budget by almost 50%. And so Mm. just like that, overnight, me and many other professors lost our jobs. And I looked for other positions around Austin, but no one was hiring. And interestingly enough, that same fall of 2017 was when I had my first guest post published in a Christian online journal, and it was Christianity Today Women. And I wrote this article on how to talk to your child about race, and it went really well. And I started to think to myself, I I should try doing this more. Mm. (laughs) And and the rest is history. So now now I write in different places on the internet. I'm a contributor with Encourage and Think Christian. And I have, I just recently signed a book contract with Zondervan. So the, I think the academic door and, and teaching German is definitely shut, but I'm excited with this new path that God has me on. That's wonderful. And you mentioned just now about an upcoming book. Can you say a little bit about it? Yeah. So the big topic is cross-cultural relationships. And I wanted to write this book to answer a lot of the big questions that people are asking right now about cross-cultural relationships, um, both inside and outside of the church. Everything from just, I don't have any friends of another culture. Like, how do I, what, what is the first step do I take to actually meet other people of other cultures? And then things like, is there a right and wrong approach? How do I do this well? What if I offend somebody? So a lot of those kind of questions is what I'm, I'm hoping to answer. And the book, it's a bit of a longer process. The book won't be coming out till probably April 2021, but it will be both available in book format as well as as an online course that college kids can be taking too. So I'm very excited. Oh, that, that's great. That's interesting. I've not ever heard of having like an online course coming alongside. And will students would be able to receive credit 
for that yes or or no or maybe I'm not sure we're still it's still in the very early stages but there will be uh some some sort of online course with videos follow along with but uh I'll I'll probably have more information on that as as we get closer right right yeah we have a a bit of time right so (laughs) yeah thank goodness And so related to your writing, you recently wrote an article, maybe this sometime this summer, an article over at Encourage about your experiences with mistaken identity in which the ways that others perceived you left you powerless. Can you share a little bit about that experience and then what thoughts you would offer, particularly to women and women of color in facing experiences like this? Yeah. Yeah, that was a crazy experience. And it's still a bit raw, too, because it just happened earlier this year. But that's the thing about racism. We need to understand that racism is not just racial prejudice. It's racial prejudice attached to systems of power. It's when someone is discriminated against and this action disadvantages them in some way. Because that's what happened to me and my son that day. A white doctor incorrectly profiled us and then refused my son medical service. And his health was threatened as a result. And that's racially caused powerlessness. And what I needed most in that moment was an ally. And thankfully, my ally that day was my husband. Because even though he is Latino, his family is from northern Mexico and they have lighter skin. So he often passes as white. And he came in later that day with my son to the clinic and immediately received the proper medication, no questions asked. And so for women and women of color in particular who have gone through similar things, my first encouragement is what I wrote in my post, that God sees us, he knows our pain, he never mistakes our identity, and he will never seek to disadvantage us. And we need to cling to this beloved identity in Christ if we are going to stay sane in a world that calls us so many horrible things. But Furthermore, we need to be okay with asking for help. So often rejection and isolation has forced us to be strong and not want to let anyone get close, but we do need allies. We need friends and people who will be our voice when we become voiceless. And this is why we need each other. We need the body of Christ. We need to defend each other too, the way God defended the marginalized. We see that in so many places in scripture, including Deuteronomy 10 verse 18. My message is for all women, both for those who have had their voice stripped from them Mm. to the people around you to ask for help, to find allies who can speak for you. And for women that do have power and privilege in their voice, use that to speak up for others. Um, And this is, this is also how we can be the body of Christ to each other. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for that encouragement. And remind me Deuteronomy 10, was it verse 18? Verse 18. Yes. I think what's so powerful about this verse is that God himself leads by example to be the defender of those who have been marginalized. And he says that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And so one of the reasons why I love this verse is because God is setting up for us, the model of how to defend the marginalized as well, that he leads the charge. And for us to be imitators of God, this is, this too is what we must do. Hmm. So then can you share sort of thinking about scripture and its role in your life and encouraging your faith and being a model of how to live and follow Jesus? 
Can you share a little bit about your daily routines, like how you begin and end the day or other spiritual disciplines, how these routines help keep you centered on Jesus and connected to his calling in your life? I think I have one of those tendencies, as probably a lot of women in academia do, that I could probably work from morning to night every day if I let myself, which mm-hmm. I can't now being a mom with babies, right? So there, I think there's some God-given grace there, but there's always more research to do and always more to write. And so for me, it's very important to ground the beginning of my day with God and time in his word. And this has definitely become harder since becoming a mom <laughs> because right. I at five. But my husband and I have been holding each other accountable to waking up before the kids do And so we can sneak downstairs and make some coffee and read scripture together and pray. And that has been part of the rhythm of our marriage, but also just part of, I think, what has always been life-giving for me in my own spiritual journey is starting the day in scripture and and, and prayer. And then also at the end of the night, both of us make sure that we stop working at least an hour before bedtime. If we work in the evenings, we don't always, but if we do, so we have time for the two of us to connect, to relax and unwind. So those are, you know, the middle of the day can sometimes be structuralist, but those two pillars are, are so crucial. Yeah. I'm super impressed that you wake up before your kids and, and <laughs> read scripture together and pray. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The coffee helps, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And if there, I guess if there are women who are like, there's no way I could do that, which is where I sit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I know there are apps and things like that too, where you can, I I do a daily, there's a website where it has like the liturgical readings for the day. And I just listen to those. For me, I'm very much an auditory person and hearing the word is helpful. So Really good. Well, and also two devotionals that I love to just recommend is one, there's a book that just came out edited by Christy Anya Bwili called His Testimonies, My Heritage. And it's all devotionals written by women of color on the word of God, which is incredible. And I'm so excited that just came out, I think last week. Okay. There's another one by Grace Cho Simmons, and I'm trying to quickly look up what her book is. Her book just came out the other day, too. It's called Beholding and Becoming the Art of Everyday Worship, and she has like hand-illustrated these images to go along with Bible verses and, and poems and other sort of quotes. It's a, it's a more contemplative form of devotions, but being that she is also an Asian American woman, it's just been so exciting to have more and more women of color writing devotions and getting their voices out. So I would definitely recommend those two devotions. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those resources. And we'll link to those two in the show notes. So going back to your academic work, I mean, your PhD in German literature with a focus on folklore, and you said, I think women's writing, storytelling, and feminist revisions. I was curious about what drew you to that particular pursuit and how that area of study has shaped your worldview and your faith. Yeah. So my first introduction to folklore was as a young girl And my mom read to me stories from Indian collections of folktales, mostly from Gujarat. And part of what I loved so much about these stories was that their pages were full of pictures of Indian men and women. And for me, that was my only exposure as a young girl to people that looked and dressed and ate like me. And that made these stories extra special. But then even at a young age, folktales 
helped illuminate so many truths in scripture that it just made sense for me to read them side by side. Because many of the heroes offer fitting representations of Christian humility and service. And most of the time in folklore, it's not the strongest or the smartest that win, but the kindest, the humblest, and the most resilient. And I could give you a ton of examples, but some of them are just popping in my mind is the Miller's Cat, which we know today as Puss in Boots. And I have to make one caveat is that when I'm talking about folklore, I'm not talking about Disney because right. there's a lot of whitewashing and Americanization that has happened with our understanding of fairy tales today. And I'm talking about those Ur tales, those original tales, if you will, old traditional tales that were full of real world issues, including oppression and hunger, dysfunctional families and pain, hardship and loss. And I wrote a little bit about this this past summer with Propel Women and also why I tell folk tales to my kids because for me, as a, trained as a folklorist, I see the way folk tales resemble the stories in the Bible. Both folk tales and scripture point to our human weaknesses and our need for help outside of ourselves. And when we read these tales, we, we are reminded that the world is dark, that we need to trust in God, that we need to hope for a better future. And also we need to find ways to be resilient in the here and now. So I, I love folklore for so many reasons, but those are, those are um, some, some of the big ones. Nice. And you shared about, well, and you talked about reading the folklore alongside of the scripture. And then earlier you had mentioned kind of growing up in, would you say like more conservative Christian background? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but also alongside like Harry Potter and that sort of thing. Would you consider Harry Potter to be maybe modern folklore? I would definitely put Harry Potter in the fantasy genre. And for me, how the, I differentiate between folk and fairy, folk tales, let's just say folk tales or folklore and fantasy in that folk tales, as the name implies, is supposed to be tales of the folk. These are real world stories. They're stories that are metaphorical or creative representations of real life issues. Mm -hmm. Whereas fantasy stories, which includes C.S. Lewis's Narnia tales, uh, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, this is about people entering into another world, a, a magical world that's separate from their own. And oftentimes that magical world teaches them lessons about their real world, but they're two separate distinct worlds that you enter by some sort of portal or door or wardrobe, if you will. And so, for example, the story of Little Red Riding Hood, this is a real story about abuse and rape. And the wolf is, is a clear metaphor for a male predator with a young girl mm -hmm. and this idea of luring her into a bed. Um, so it's, it's all there, you know, that sort of pedophilia and child abuse, it's all there. And when peasants would share these tales, they were telling them either in the fields while they worked or around the fire in the evenings, which is why we have, you know, Kindle, for example, the sort of hearkening back to storytelling around the fire. And adults were sharing them with each other, but children were certainly also listening. And it was their sort of way of passing the time, but also their way of processing what was happening in their world and learning how to 
outwit the smart wolf or the powers to be or, or what have you. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I would have never, I never, <laughs> I never picked up on that at all in Red Riding Hood and I will never hear that story the same again, but I know. Just, it makes a lot of sense. Yes. It's like how did, yeah. How did I miss that? Um, <laughs> But yeah, oh, and I appreciate the the clarification even between folklore and fantasy, and the folklore being, you know, very much based in reality. Like this is what's happening, and uh, yeah. and processing it, making sense of it. That idea again of narrative. And you talked about narrative justice a little bit, but I wonder if you could say more about your thoughts on stories and storytelling and the way in which we tell our stories often affects our lives. And what role do you think story plays in the way we perceive ourselves? And how do you see that play out in the community in which you live and serve? Yeah. So I think, I I believe that God created all of us to be what I would call homo narens or storytelling humans. And Walter Fisher has this great quote where he argues that in the beginning, was the word, or more accurately, the logos. And in the beginning, logos meant story. And each of our lives tells stories. And we need to talk about our stories to make sense of the world, to find our voice, and especially to experience healing. And I think one of the incredible things about storytelling is that it can give people agency. And in my everyday ministry in East Austin, as I've mentioned to you already, is that I counsel a number of women who have suffered unimaginable pain and abuse and loss, things that involve gangs and drug cartels, physical assault and rape, um, both here in the city as well as for migrants on their journeys trying to get to America. And part of how I counsel these women is encouraging them to tell their own story and also to determine their own ending. So it's so important for these women to be given a voice to share their stories and to be told that their stories matter. This is, this is in many ways part of the point of the story in Judges 19 and 20 of the abuse and murder of the unnamed woman, that after she's killed in Judges 20, God says that he will never forget her story. And this is something that we need to be telling others as well, that their stories matter, that we want to hear their voice. And just voicing their story can be a form of healing. But then also something that I do with the women that I counsel is I encourage them to write a new ending, to imagine what the story would look like, say, if they called the police or finally said no or fill in the blank. And sometimes exploring these ideas theoretically and creatively through storytelling is the first step to then acting them out in real life. And I've had sessions with women where they've come back and they've read their story, which includes their past, but they've written a conclusion of how they want the story to go from here. And one, just reading that aloud and having other women encouraging that, supporting that, women have left those counseling sessions so empowered with so much courage, courage in the Lord to then go out and actually tell their abuser enough or to call the police. And those things have happened, which is, which is incredible. So that's some of the power that storytelling can have. And I'm curious too, then have you had like classes or training, particularly in counseling? Because I mean, what you're describing is absolutely like narrative therapy and I'm sitting in the place of a a graduate counseling student. So yeah. yeah, Have you had classes? (laughs) You know, (laughs) you know, I, I, 
haven't necessarily, you know, I've had my world in academia with teaching the power of storytelling and folklore. And then I have my ministry uh, with our church in East Austin. And this is just the ways in which I have connected my mm. faith and my learning and my ministry together and living that out in sort of day-to-day relationships. Yeah. I mean, it's straight out of uh, the graduate counseling textbook. So well, well awesome. done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you're anyway. right. And that's another phrase too, narrative therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, we, I don't think that we, I think Christians in particular, we could be talking about this more. I think sometimes we just want to figure out what's the solution and we right. ignore the process and we just want to have, okay, here was your before story. Let's get to the after, like the darkness, now the light, the brokenness, now the healing. And we definitely need to be sitting more in that in-between messy, painful space and giving voice to people's stories. So I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it's good. Yeah. And there are many, many different, you know, theoretical orientations for counseling and narrative therapy is just one of them, but it definitely has uh, that same idea of you're not changing the facts of what happened. And I would say maybe even in in a lot of our churches, we want to just change the facts of what happened to make it easier and less painful um, to enter into people's pain. But instead, you're not changing the facts, but you're reframing. And like you said, writing your own ending, interpreting how you want to, or kind of changing the way you interpret what happened to take back your power. And so there's very much a sort of a relationship, I would say, between narrative therapy and even feminist therapy, but that's mm. that's a whole other conversation, I suppose. <laughs> yes, a good conversation. Yeah, but I love how you've taken your study of story and your Christian faith, tied them together, and you're counseling women through their pain, mm. um, but just intuiting it and, and knowing what people need and helping, yeah, empower women to move forward and, and find healing. Yeah. So yeah, both through Christ, of course, first mm-hmm. and foremost, and then also just through sort of reclaiming their own lives and power. Yeah. Absolutely. We need to see it as holistic care, right? Sure. Uh, spiritual counseling. Yes. And we see this in the gospels, right? Jesus's kingdom, the kingdom that he comes to in break is holistic. He comes and and is after people's hearts and souls, but along the way, he's also doing physical healings. He's restoring people back into society. So there is this holistic care in Jesus's ministry. And so we need to, yes, pray and read scripture and care for people's hearts, but we also need to help them get out of physically dangerous situations too mm-hmm. and, and call the police when necessary. So uh, it's all of the above, both and. Yeah. And I love that you point us back to Jesus and the example he gives in the way he cares for people. And so many stories you can think of. I mean, the woman that had been bleeding for 12 years is the one that comes to mind and just the way he cares for her emotionally and physically and spiritually, all of it, all of it matters. That's good. So totally shifting gears now that you're, so you're totally connected to the realities of the world in your work now, whereas, you know, maybe before it was more of a intellectual work. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts for current grad students and faculty who are kind of immersed in more higher level academic work, how they can stay connected to the realities of the world? Yeah, absolutely. And 
perhaps because I am a you know a church planter and pastor's wife, my answer is really simple, and that's to be fully immersed in the life of your local church. Mm -hmm. I think that the way we stay grounded is by spending time with real people and real ministries. And we need to be committed to a small group. I know that being in academia, we are all super, super busy. We're teaching, we're taking courses, we're doing internships, uh, and we bring our work home with us. But we need to make space, sacred space, truly, for the church and to serve in some capacity in your community hopefully connected with your church in some way where you can find ways to connect your research with the people you serve. And I wanted to give just one example because when we lived in Chicago, we were part of a small church where Aaron was serving as a resident pastor and there was a big group of older German saints that attended. And they had actually all been born in the 1930s and survived World War II as children. And specifically, and what I found so interesting was that they were German I would call them German victims. Their families were Christian and they refused to support Hitler and they were captured by Russians and put in Russian concentration camps, which were just like the German concentration camps, but run by the Russians. And so some of them watched their parents starve to death. Others were victims of rape. Another had a sibling that she watched as her sibling was run over by a Russian tank. I mean, just incredible mm. horrors, but their faith in Christ has helped them forgive and to heal. And near the time of near the end of our time at that church, I just knew that I wanted to do something with all of these stories that I had heard. And so I interviewed them and made a documentary chronicling their stories called Out of the Shadows, German Stories of Love, War, and Faith. Because um, I was so inspired by their stories, I just had to do something. And you just never know how you'll be able to intersect your life, your faith, and your work unless you go looking for those intersections and you're plugged in to real people. So that's my encouragement for women in the academia. Yeah. And what I'm hearing you say too, is really getting to know people and getting to hear their stories and, you know, and who doesn't want to talk about themselves? You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't be hard to go and talk to someone and just ask them like, what's your story? Tell me about your life. Now, is this a documentary that we can find? You know, I'm still, I, I need to get it available on Amazon, but I'm hoping that will be something readily available very soon. So I'll right. let you know when it's up and up and running on, on Amazon, but yeah. Yeah, that's, please do. That's the goal. Excellent. Well, is there anything else that I didn't think or know to ask that you'd like to share? I don't think so. I've really enjoyed talking with you. It's been, this has been wonderful. Yeah, it's been a joy. Well, and finally, we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote or scripture or song or other set of words that has been meaningful to you lately? And can you share sort of why it resonates with you at this time? Yeah, so I like to not treat myself too seriously. One of the sort of quotes that my husband and I tell each other is that we're never as great as we think we are and we're never as bad as we think we are either. And my favorite book of the Bible is Ecclesiastes, because I think the whole book is a good reminder for academics and scholars and writers mm -hmm. alike to remember, as Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, that there is nothing new under the sun, that our ideas are built on and connected to those who came before us, and our ideas paved a path for those who come after us. It's not about trying to become famous or rich or 
you know, whatever fill in the blank, it's about glorifying God with our work and enjoying life along the way. And that's what I'm continuing to cling to in this current season of writing and speaking. So not taking myself too seriously is an important attitude for me in my work. Wonderful. It's both humbling and encouraging. Praise God. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Michelle. We really appreciate your time and your thoughts and wisdom. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.